Hi, this is Matt from Working Fintech. And this morning, I'm joined by Helen Lip, one of Working Fintech's founder members. She just finished a master's in innovation and technology management at Bath University. And today, we're delighted to interview and sit down with Christian Fromm, who is currently CEO and founder of United Fintech, but actually has a phenomenal fintech story to talk about, where he founded a company back in 2008 and actually exited that for a very healthy sum um, a couple of years ago. So he's already had one fintech in the bag and is now on the second. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Christian. I'm going to hand over to you, Helen, now, and we'll kick off the interview. Hi, Christian. It's great having you here today. Before we jump into fintech, could you just explain for our listeners what exactly you do and how does that intersect with fintech? I'm founding of a business called United Fintech. So for that to make sense, I probably have to explain a little bit about the fintech scene. And maybe I go back to Matt's intro, which is about my background in this business. I've been in fintech for 20 years or something like that. Most of those years without realizing I was in fintech. That's how I go. So maybe I kind of go back to my, I mean, I, I studied in the States originally. So I studied in Boston, went four years there, then came back to Europe. So I came back to London and started an internet business. So back then the dot-com boom was the most exciting thing you could do at that time. I created a business called bizadvice.com, which was connecting people that uh, had knowledge on one side and people that needed knowledge on the other side. And, you know, at that time, today sounds quite trivial, but at that time, nobody knew about the internet. So finding people that could advise on that was quite hard for people. So we thought that was a great idea, hooked up with uh, another Danish guy based in London. And we did that. So crazy times, not much focus on revenue. The fact that you had a .com name at the time was enough to uh, make, you know, everybody .com millionaires on paper. But all that stuff and all that money went away quite, quite quickly when the whole thing crashed. It was like in 2001. So then I joined Bloomberg in London. And Bloomberg is actually, in my estimation, one of the first fintech businesses, if not the first. So when I joined Bloomberg, there was a TV station. It was London office was a lot smaller than it is today. So there's probably a thousand people there, 1500 people there. But nobody thought about the concept of what is fintech. And, you know, if we take the basic of the word, you know, it's financial technology, right? And that is, in essence, what Bloomberg was quite early on. They were, I think, pioneers in going in and looking at what can be done digitally. A lot of this was voice broken at the time and, you know, looking at screens was quite manual. So Bloomberg was very early in that space. And I think it's one of the biggest fintech uh, successes so far is actually Bloomberg. People don't realize that because it's been around for so many years and everybody thinks that fintech is new, but it's an evolution in essence. So I spent three years there, learned how to sell. Bloomberg uh, as a company is very good at selling. So they have a very structured process around that. Uh, and then in 2003, I joined Saxo Bank in Denmark and Saxo at the time was also actually a fintech business without knowing it. So they had been around for five, six years and in 2001 they became a bank and I joined in 2003 and they were building this platform. People were getting online and again, a big part of Saxo, I joined when there were 150 people there and like half of the people were technology people. So there were people that coding stuff. So they very much had that vision of, you know, we need to build and digitize processes and stuff. So Saxo came from, yeah, I joined when there were 150 people and then it became 1,500 people over three years. So very dramatic rise. And most of the people, 50% of the people that were hired were like IT people. When I left Saxo with 1,400 people, there was 800 IT guys. So very heavy focus on technology. That's in essence, and I'll stop there, uh, you know, that's in essence... I think fintech can be very complicated, but in fact, to think about it, it's just about digitizing an industry. Like you've seen other, all other industries in the world have been digitized and financial services, given that it's banks and big institutions, it's just a bit slower. So if you want to simplify it down to, to what it is, it's just you know using technology to 
catch up if you want, but or to innovate what's happening in, in the industry. I think what's really interesting, after you left the big companies like Saxo Bank and Bloomberg, you set up your own fintech company. And I think what's really interesting for our listeners is to know what really drove you and what was your motivation and also what knowledge and what skills helped you. For example, you learned during your time at Saxo Bank or Bloomberg in your further career. That's a good question. So, I mean, Bloomberg for me was very much about if you have a great product and you have the right sales pros around you, you can scale it. So Bloomberg in 2001, when I joined, was competing very heavily with Reuters. The two products were quite similar. I mean, Bloomberg was considered a slightly better product, but the growth of Bloomberg and the growth of Reuters is night and day. So, you know, Bloomberg goes like this. Reuters is losing market share. And one of the big reasons for that is just the very hardcore focus on, on customer service process and, you know, how do you scale? So sales, in essence, and that's the big lesson from Bloomberg, is very much about numbers, right? So it's the number of calls you do, number of meetings you take. So the way to scale a business is having a good process around uh, the sales side. Once you have a great product, the scaling of that is the process of sailing and, and actually the people. So people is also very, very important. And I took that learning to Saxo at a time when they were, you know, the B2B side of Saxo was quite small. So I took over a of eight people there didn't know how to manage people I had no idea actually so I came in and all these guys I was 26 at the time and they were all older than me so all everybody in that B2B team was like in their 40s or and I really didn't know how to manage anybody so I thought back on uh, my Bloomberg experience what is what is it that these guys did and it was very simple you know they were very focused on numbers so I started implementing you know where's your pipeline how many calls have you done how many meetings have you taken when you go travel you need to have five meetings a day all that stuff was new in sex at the time on the B2B side. So putting that kind of metrics in uh, focuses the effort. And, you know, for the first six months, half the team resigned and said, I'm not part of this, right? This is not, uh, I like to kind of not be told you need this amount of calls. I can do my own. I can go to Australia for a week and then have two meetings and come back. I don't need kind of that process. But actually, the people that stayed and we hired new people, all of a sudden, that business went from like six, eight million dollars to 200 million dollars in three years. So quite a dramatic rise. And to me, that's one of kind of the basics of scaling. So I've, I've kind of taken the Bloomberg experience that was about scaling, put it that into sex at the right time that scaled really nicely. And I think the question, why did I leave? I've had this philosophy you know, in my entire career that if you look ahead and the guy next to you or above you, you don't really want his job, but you can't see yourself taking that job. You're at the end of where you want, where you can progress in the company. So I was part of the management team in Saxo with the two founders and those two founders there. And I didn't see myself taking, you know, over time, as in, with an ambition to run sex. So it wasn't really a dream of mine. I always wanted to do my own thing at some stage. So when you have that in you, then in essence, you are buying time until you need to do something else. And for me, that time was a very exciting time. Uh, you know, it was growing like crazy. It had a lot of fun. But I also, an industry was moving very quickly. So I thought uh, if I want to be part of that, be part of changing that industry, I need to do something else at some stage. So I left in the end of 2007, in 2008, which turned out to be, from everybody looking from outside, horrendous time to leave. I mean, most people are listening to this call maybe cannot remember that in 2008, you know, some of the biggest banks in the world were almost going out of business. So to put in perspective, I mean, Goldman Sachs was pretty much bailed out by Warren Buffett. The whole world was like crumpling. You had days where Barclays was losing a third of their value in a single day. So quite crazy times. And then to start a business in that space, in hindsight, is is a little bit crazy. But I didn't really know that as I left. I left in, in the 2007. It was still kind of high. So I wanted to have an, an impact on my own. And sometimes I think if you have that in you, you need to follow what you got feeling. And that's what I did. Do you think you can learn that? Exactly this mindset, being an entrepreneur, doing your own thing, an own impact. 
You think you can learn that? I think I think you have to have some basic, or you, you have to have some fundamental things in you that makes it possible. Because a lot of people, especially uh, these days, are idealizing the entrepreneurial journey. So everybody says, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to make the money. I want to do all these things. And entrepreneurs these days are hyped a lot. And you, of course, have someone like Elon Musk calling himself an entrepreneur. And that kind of makes other people want to be an entrepreneur. He's not a wealthy, rich guy. He's actually an entrepreneur. And that just goes nice. So in the world of business these days, an entrepreneur is very much, I think, at the pinnacle of what you become. What people forget a little bit is the road, you know, the entrepreneurial journey can be anything from a guy starting a restaurant to a guy that just, I mean, it doesn't need to be a Tesla for me to be an entrepreneur. And a lot of people in the entrepreneurial journey is quite tough. Most people, you know, you can have the lucky punch, which we didn't have. I mean, I used to say that 19 out of 20 things that could go wrong went wrong for us during the journey. So it's a very, very rough, difficult journey. And I think that's one of the core things that unless you're really lucky and you hit something that just takes off like a rocket within six months which does happen then the entrepreneurial journey is the lifestyle you know you have to get a mind around that you know it's going to be tough for two or three years you're not going to go on the same vacations as your friends you know when they're going out you're going to say well i'm going to be working on saturday and you're going to have to sacrifice stuff and a lot of people are actually not ready for that and in fact they don't really want to live in a life that's quite uncertain you know the entrepreneurial journey if you go through what i say is the the most normal entrepreneurial journey it's very tough the one day can be the best day in your world and the next day or even three hours later it's the worst day in your world and that kind of shift it's not something that everybody is made out to do there's different levels of it and i have a lot of respect for people doing any project i think even what you guys are doing here is entrepreneurial right i think that's starting something wasn't there before and adding value in that way you know that's still entrepreneurial stuff but if you talk about you know risking it all which some of these things take and you you don't take a salary and you put your house up for a third house loan and all this that's very stressful and i think that's not for everybody so i don't think everybody should be entrepreneurs i think everybody can probably get their minds to it i think if you pressure people enough and they you know if you burn the boats to take on the island then uh, you have no way to go but fight but you have to get your mind around that this is not a walk in the park and you're gonna have to do sacrifices Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. Concerning entrepreneurs, do you think you can classify them like into generalists or specialists? Or do you even think that a classification like this makes sense? Or what's your opinion on that? I don't think it makes sense. I mean, I've been asked that quite a few times also lately. And there's one perception you have to be super successful and you have to, otherwise you're not an entrepreneur. But I had this experience. I mean, I built this internet business. You know, look, it wasn't hugely successful. We didn't make a ton of money. But we did something in 99 that nobody else was doing. I thought it was quite cool. And we had at some state like five employees. We had, a, I don't know, 20 customers. Uh, but we were burning money and I was at a party like a year and a half later and maybe two months after we closed it down and I met one of these accelerator guys the guy that was like spending money he was ra he raised money and he was like putting money into startup companies and he we had a meet him at a party and he had a drink he's like give me a cheers and he's like Christian you know one of the things that you didn't experience here was you never really became an entrepreneur and I looked at him and like why do you say that and he's like you know the business didn't work out so I'm like, well, to me, I still don't something, right? I tried it out. And he walks off and said, no, I don't think you are. So it kind of imprinted on me. I don't think you have to be, be something 
specific in a specific industry. I don't think I would call anybody who's trying to do stuff that wasn't there built from scratch an entrepreneur. So if you take something, an idea in your head and make it happen, that's entrepreneurship. I mean, it goes down to people doing stuff in school. You know, the people that are taking initiative, I think those are the people that makes things happen and most likely will also be quite successful on the entrepreneurial journey. I don't think, I mean, we look at a lot of tech guys and we're looking at a lot of people that build businesses from scratch and maybe today there are 40 people and their focus is very product focused is very heavy on tech they're very heavy on the engineering side so they're very specialized people to your example there uh, Helen right they're very very good at the specific thing to me there as entrepreneurs as you know somebody who's very focused on the sales side and doesn't have the product side so I think for me it's more the you know the ability and the willingness to create stuff that wasn't there before being an entrepreneur like you said before is also inclined with a lot of ups and downs and for me what's like and for our listeners what's like really interesting to know if you got any valuable career advice when you were for example at a low or something did you get any advice which were like really helpful for you for your career or for the obstacles or challenges you were facing I've always taken a lot of inspiration from other people that have been on a similar journey. So I think that's a good place to start because uh, the entrepreneurial journey is quite well documented. There's been loads of people that have been very successful in the journey and they tend to go through some of the same things just at a different level. And the core answer to a lot of these questions is the same whether you're Steve Jobs, Elon Musk or Bill Gates for that matter. If you take, I would say, 20 books of people that have done really well and they have documented that, they hit some of the same obstacles and the way they deal with it is quite similar actually. So it starts for me with the mindset you have when you encounter problems. When you encounter problems, you can kind of interpret those problems in two ways. You can say, well, Uh, why is that at all happening to me? You know, I, I thought this was going so well. You know, now we're back to where we are. Or you could say, actually, this is part of life. You know, obstacles is part of a process and I'm going to grow from that. I'm going to learn from that. So I think it's very interesting. Two people can have the exact same experience and one person will interpret it in one way. The other person will interpret it completely different. And that's kind of the key. The key is how you interpret the situation you encounter. So I think that's one of the most important things for me to remember when I've seen problems that I'm expecting problems because they will arise, but I'm also expecting to deal with those problems. So I think the mindset is very, very important. And to remember to have this guiding star, you're building something you think is important and the mission of that is more important than the problems you have on the road to get there. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's all a little bit. I think a lot is about also experiences and having different perspectives yeah, and other angles as well. And yeah, like what's very interesting is that you founded United Fintech last year. Can you just tell our listeners what your company is about and how did you come up with this idea and the business model? I mean, I, as Matt was saying in the introduction, I sold my business in first over two times, first in 2016 and then again in 2019. So I sold 70% in, in 16 and then the remaining 30% in 19. And then I kind of had spent, you know, eight years getting the business to where it was and all of a sudden and it's like okay what do I do now am I going to retire uh, am I going to hang out buy a boat buy a, I mean what's the plan from here and I very very quickly got bored so within the first two weeks I'm like I can't deal with this I need to do stuff so we had this long journey with my kids plan so we went traveling for three months and as I was coming back it took like a I'd say a road trip but I went and visited a lot of people that were important in my previous journey and part of the 
success of CFH was my previous business was we were very closely tied with banks. So in 2008, when I started, I went to Ryan Barclays and said, hey, you need to help me get access to your pricing because we'll be a very large customer of you guys. And the guy smiled a little bit, like a little bit nervous because I think he's heard that before. And I said, but you need to give me a chance here because I know it's very difficult to become a Barclays partner early on, but I've done stuff in the past and I'll make it work. So he's like, yeah, okay, it was a guy called Chris. I won't mention his full name because I think that's unfair. <laughs> To him, but uh, he's a quite senior person in the industry today. So he was sitting there and he gave me a chance. And then when uh, the guy in Barclays gave me a chance, then I went to uh, somebody in Goldman Sachs and then UBS and said, hey, Barclays just gave me a chance. Could you also help me out? So I had three major banks early on supporting the CFH journey. And throughout the life of CFH, banks were a very important part of that journey. So we were very closely partnering with banks. The business model of CFH was very friendly towards banks. We had great success with banks. So as I was leaving, I went to a lot of these guys that have been important to me in the past and said I'm leaving CFH I'm doing something else and they're all like what are you doing these days so what's your thoughts are you just gonna go on vacation or what are you doing and and I said well I have this thing you know I'm a bit sad to see all what's happening in, in, in the banking space because I think you guys are about to die and you may not be around for the next journey and I expect these guys to laugh and say yeah that's fine why don't you go back on your vacation but they didn't actually laugh they were like yeah but what do you mean so well, I think actually the whole world is moving at light speed, right? So you have like a bullet train going on the side. People change their habits all the time. Financial services is changing rapidly. You have all these fintech people coming in and trying to disrupt financial services. And every other industry is moving at light speed. People are used to work in different ways. And banks, you guys, you're just stuck. I mean, you're doing business like, like it was 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, we know, but that's our life. And I said, well, you may not be around for the next 20 years if that's how you're going to go. So instead of actually getting kicked off and being laughed at, they were like, yeah, no, we, we agree with what you're saying, but what are you doing about it? So I had these kind of sessions with major banks and I was like, well, I think the way to deal with it is to help people that are building these great products make it more easy for you to access those products because that's where the innovation is happening. It's not happening when you're looking at your existing relationship with whether that's uh, Microsoft or IBM or exchange partnerships or all these bigger players. They're just charging you more money every year. The innovation is not happening there. And in fact, you guys look at each other like Goldman is used looking at UBS and thinking, I'm competing with these guys. But in fact, that's not where you're competing. You're competing against uh, tech firms that you don't see today in your space. And the way you deal with this right now is you're running around with bow and arrow like in the old days shooting against UBS or Deutsche Bank and you've got people coming in with laser guns and AI tools and all this stuff and it's not even a comparable warrior you're not fighting the same it's like comparing like little league soccer with people playing Champions League so unless you change that you know it's going to be a very very unfair game one of the key things in that is actually around data if you think about the access to data that tech firms have today whether you know you can open your iPhone and I had a friend the other day last week or the week before he opened he went to some settings I've never seen in my iPhone and quite probably he could tell me all sorts of things I didn't had no idea that was recorded on my iPhone but there's a lot of information that's shared in your iPhone and the way when you get on your laptop that is stored by tech firms so they know an awful lot about you now if you jump to your bank you've been a customer of maybe for 20 years they know nothing they don't know anything about you so it's not a fair battle so I said to these guys look you need to access technology from the smaller guys like Companies with less than 100 employees, around 60 to 70 employees, they have great products, but they're just sick and tired of waiting for you guys to onboard because it's going to take 24 months to get onboarded in Goldman Sachs and nobody really wants to go through that. And then you're going to take them through this grueling process where you've made them feel like you know they're not really a real company. They're not good enough to deal with you and they're the guys who can actually save you guys. So they're like, yeah, okay, what's the concept here? So is it a private equity structure? What are you doing? So I look at United Fintech as a company where we help great companies 
with great products access banks quicker because we can't change overnight the way the banks look at smaller tech firms. It's not going to work, right? It's not. They've tried that. Even banks themselves have set up venture arms, which I think has been questionable successful because actually there's a lot of different things in that model that doesn't work. So I think we need a neutral player in the industry. And for me, uh, United Fintech is about helping banks, helping the industry data size quicker by getting you know people that needs that technology access to those products much quicker. So we are, in essence, uh, investing in and finding companies where we think they have great products, but they need to be part of something bigger in terms of onboarding credit process, access to customers, global scale. So most fintech businesses actually need to sell in the same core centers, right? So whether you're based in London, you're going to end up building, if you want to be a global business, you're going to end up having to build offices in New York, in Dubai, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in China, uh, Middle East. These kind of core fintech hubs are the same for all the businesses. So we think there's tremendous scale and help. We can, on one side, help these companies scale better and faster, but also the banks where they are not able to untangle their onboarding processes themselves and all the regulations they are faced with. So, And I think that's the final thing I want to say. It's not like anybody in the banks are not aware of what's happening. In fact, I've always been impressed by the quality of people in the banks. It's some of the smartest people in the world, but the framework and the world they live in is horrendous. So we got a couple of minutes left, Christian. What would you say to young people kind of studying now or, or maybe have just started their career to take advantage of you know this next wave that we're seeing in fintech? We spoke about Bloomberg as probably the earliest fintech, at least in the capital market space. And then there's a big wave that's still in an early part of that at the moment from what I see and probably from what you see as well. There's still a lot of headroom left in what we're looking at. What would you say to those young people who are looking to find out more about working in fintech? Look, I think it's a good question, Matt. And I think that, I mean, the core for me is ensuring you have a real interest in the space, meaning that you actually find it fascinating and interesting as a start. Because fintech is one of these buzzwords like the internet was and crypto is today. There's all these buzzwords that runs around. And probably what you shouldn't do is just jump on a bandwagon because you hear this fintech word being thrown around. And that's interesting. I may make some money there. I think that's the recipe for disaster. I think you have to find in yourself, this is something that I can see myself doing for 20 years or 30 years because I really am passionate about that side of the business. And you're absolutely right. In my estimation, we're very early in that. So it's not for me a rush to get in and do something. It's going to be around because it's actually quite slow what's happening, right? It's, it, you're in the same industry yourself, and it's not changing overnight. It's going quickly, but it's a big industry to change. So I think get to hook up. I mean, I think what you guys are doing here is tremendous, but there's a lot of th- things on the internet if you want to learn about it. I mean, I normally use YouTube a lot, not for following YouTubers that are talking about shooting Coke bottles or doing other things like that, but there's a lot of valuable information for people that are really, really good at what they do. You can, in fact, jump to Stanford in two minutes and you can go into a, an online class about FinTech. You can jump to Jack Ma in China talking about Alipay or these things. It's very easy for people, also young people, to educate yourself without having, having to spend any money if you use the resources out there and I think YouTube is a phenomenal tool for that and people I think abuse it and they use it for time wasting but in fact for me YouTube is kind of a golden mile of golden standard of information so there's a lot to learn there and I think that's the starting point man right you want to ignite a little bit of fire in you that you want to learn more about it and there's a lot of people that talked about it and so, so I think that's the starting point for me Great. Thank you, Christian. We'll wrap up there because I know that you have to dash. Um, but thank you so much for your time. We didn't really have to ask you too many questions. I <laughs> think you kind of just explained your journey and how you got to where you are and how you've approached it. And I think it's very, very insightful for people that are going to be listening to this. So, Christian, thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. Glad to be there. Thank you very much.